bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, February 22nd, 2011. This week, I'll start with historic tax credit news, which includes the winner of our Super Bowl commercial contest, and I'll take a look at the National Park Service's annual report for 2010. For our renewable energy discussion, I'll talk about recent legislative developments at the federal level, as well as a renewable energy bill that's been introduced in the state of Maryland. Turning to new markets tax credits, I'll share an update from the Novogratik New Market Tax Credit Working Group which recently released Recommended Practices for CDE Board Accountability. Finally, for the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit segment, I'll review the findings of a report in Florida that compares the job creation that's generated by constructing new Low-Income Housing Tax Credit developments as compared to that of preserving existing developments. So if you're ready, let's get started. Now I mentioned we'd start with historic tax credit news, but before we do get into that, I did want to give an update on the status of the funding of the federal government. The continuing resolution, as most of our listeners know, expires in less than two weeks on Friday, March 4th. Congress, however, is not in session. Congress is on district and state work periods. So they'll return next week, and when they do return, they'll have only a few days until the March 4th expiration. Now, I do expect a short-term extension not an extension through September 30th, but a shorter-term extension, with some budget cuts. How much of budget cuts is still to be negotiated. Last Saturday, the House representatives set a marker in terms of budget cuts when at 4.44 a.m. on Saturday morning, the House passed a bill that would fund the government through September 30th of this year and cut over $60 billion dollars. Now, the Senate is not expected to go along with that bill. The House is controlled by Republicans and the Senate by Democrats. To that end, or to that point, Democratic Senator Conrad suggested that the final cuts likely to be agreed to by the Senate would be about half of what the House had agreed to. Now, if agreement is not reached for some type of an extension by March 4th, then the government would shut down. Also, remember that this is but one of three coming budget battles. Once this battle is resolved, the next budget battle will be around the April time frame, and it will deal with raising the national debt ceiling. And then once the national debt ceiling issue is resolved, both the House and the Senate need to pass a budget for next year. The fiscal year 2012 budget starts on the first of October. So we have the 930-2011 budget battle, we have the debt ceiling budget battle, and then we have the fiscal year in 2012 budget battle, with that budget starting on October 1st. So turning to historic tax credit news, we do have a contest winner. I'm pleased to start this week's historic tax credit discussion with the announcement of the winner of our Super Bowl commercial contest. 
The first person to correctly guess which commercial from this year's Super Bowl was my favorite was Jeffrey Oakman. Mr. Oakman is Vice President of Special Projects with Brian Wishneff and Associates in Washington, D.C. He correctly guessed that my favorite commercial was the Chrysler ad called Imported from Detroit. This commercial became my instant favorite because of the theater that was featured in its closing scenes. The Fox Theater in Detroit is one of five Fox theaters built in the late 1920s by William Fox. The others were built in Brooklyn, Atlanta, St. Louis, and San Francisco. The Detroit Fox was designed by architect C. Howard Crane. And, of most relevance to listeners, and why it was my instant favorite, the theater was restored with the help of historic tax credits. So congratulations to Mr. Oakman for winning the contest, and his prize is free registration to the National Historic Tax Credit Conference. The conference will be held April 7th and 8th in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, if you'd like to join Mr. Oakman, Novogratian Company, and other tax credit professionals at this event, just visit us online at www.novacode.com events, and you'll find more information there. Now, turning to national historic news, last week, the Washington State Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation reported on its blog that the National Park Service has released its annual statistical report and analysis for the fiscal year 2010. This report is released each year by the Park Service's Technical Preservation Services Office. And as you may have surmised, it summarizes performance of federal tax incentives for rehabilitating historic buildings. National totals presented in the report indicate that an investment of $3.43 billion associated with historic tax credits were made and that investment resulted in the rehabilitation of 951 historic buildings and created 41,641 new jobs. As has been a trend for several years, in 2010, Missouri once again led all the states in use of the federal historic credit. In Missouri last year, 118 projects were certified, representing an investment of nearly $500 million. The Washington State Department of Archaeology and Historic Preservation notes that Washington State ranked 18th overall in terms of certified rehabilitation investments at nearly $61 million. This was just behind its neighbor, Oregon, where historic cash credit investments in 2010 were $64 million. The report notes that nearly 50% of rehabilitation projects that used historic credits also used income or property tax incentives implemented at the state or local level. At the time of this recording, a copy of the 2010 report had not yet been posted on the National Park Service's website. But, once it's available, we'll post it online at www.historictaxcredits.com. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, last week, the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee confirmed U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington as chair of the Subcommittee on Energy. Senator Cantwell also served as Energy Subcommittee Chair during last Congress. As Chair of the Energy Subcommittee during the upcoming Congress, Senator Cantwell plans to continue to pursue many priorities, including a clean energy loan program, which she says would greatly reduce financing costs for new clean energy projects. The Energy Subcommittee's jurisdiction includes oversight of new technologies research and development, commercialization of new technologies, including solar energy systems, and federal energy conservation programs. 
In related renewable energy news, Nebraska Republican Representative Jeff Fortenberry introduced legislation last month to increase the amount of federal funding available to rural renewable energy projects. The bill was introduced on January 12th. The measure is called the Rural Energy Equity Act. H.R. 277 would exempt properties that receive grants from the Rural Energy for America program, also known as REAP, from a production tax rate offset that can reduce the benefit of REAP funding by up to 50%. The bill is the third time that Representative Fortenberry has sponsored legislation to exempt REAP grants from the production tax credit offset. In a 2010 year-end report that discussed an earlier incarnation of the proposal, Representative Fortenberry said that the goal is to expand opportunities for wind production in rural America. In a 2009 press release, again about an earlier version of the bill, Representative Fortenberry said that REAP provides grants and loan guarantees for farmers who install community wind and other locally owned energy projects. Often, farmers will partner with developers to finance renewable energy projects. The developers, in turn, are eligible for production tax credits for the projects. However, currently, the amount of the tax credits that they can receive is reduced if the project involves a REAP grant or loan guarantee. According to an article at farmenergy.org, the reduced amount of tax credits reduces the project's financial returns and delays the time until the project flips back to the local owner from the investors. If H.R. 277 passes, developers would be able to collect the same amount of production tax credits whether or not the project receives REAP funding. Upon introduction, the bill was referred to the House Committee on Ways and Means. Turning to state energy developments, the state of Maryland may soon become one of the first places in North America to host an offshore wind farm. Earlier this month, Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley introduced the Offshore Wind Energy Act. The bill was submitted before the General Assembly as HB 1054. The bill would require Maryland public utilities to purchase between 400 and 600 megawatts of electricity through long-term power purchase agreements with wind power generation facilities off Maryland's coastline. Without rates locked in over the long term, In order to hedge against fossil fuel prices, the governor's office says Maryland's electricity market is a potentially volatile one. Supporters say a power purchase agreement requirement for offshore wind generation, like the one proposed in HB 1054, would provide more stable energy pricing and predictability. It could also create jobs by boosting offshore wind development. A 500-megawatt offshore wind facility could generate as many as 2,000 construction and manufacturing jobs and 400 permanent positions after the turbines are operational. This according to a Department of Energy analysis. The Department of Energy also, by way of noting, has classified Maryland's offshore wind resources as outstanding. Last week's listeners may also recall that the Department of the Interior identified this area as one of four high-priority sites in its strategic plan to accelerate offshore wind energy development. Governor O'Malley's office says the bill's passage is essential to ensure that Maryland meets its renewable portfolio standard goal of generating 20% of its energy from renewable sources by the year 2022. Energy generated by an offshore wind development could count for as much as 15% towards the goal, according to the Maryland Energy Administration.
The text of HB 1054 is available online at www.energytaxcredits.com. In New Market Tax Credit news, last week, the Novogratic New Markets Tax Credit Working Group released the final version of its recommended practices for CDE board accountability. As most listeners likely know, Internal Revenue Code Section 45D includes accountability rules for community development entities or CDEs. Section 45D specifies that a CDE can maintain accountability to residents of low-income communities through their representation on any governing board of the entity or on any advisory board to the entity. The Treasury Department and the CDFI Fund have issued some guidance on this topic, including guidance regarding the characteristics of board members that would be deemed to be representative of low-income communities. However, there are some issues that have not been definitively resolved in the existing guidance. As such, the Working Group's recommended practices document is intended to help create a standard for certifying a CDE's board and its accountability to the low-income communities it serves. The Working Group document discusses existing guidance, open questions, and other relevant background information. The document then sets out a set of procedures to be performed by a CDE in order to document three key points. Those key points are, one, that a minimum of 20% of the board is representative of the low-income community in its service area. Two, the status of each member of the board who is considered a representative of the low-income community. And third, if an advisory board is used by the CDE, that the governing board gives consideration to the viewpoints of the advisory board. Now, it should be noted that the recommended practices developed by the NMTC Working Group have not been approved by the CDFI Fund or Treasury, and they only serve as a potential consensus method to comply with the accountability test. The NMTC Working Group also created and posted a sample certification form. For questions about these documents or to learn more about the NMTC Working Group, please go to www.nmtcworkinggroup.com or call my partner Brad Elphick in our Atlanta, Georgia office. In local tax credit news, the Florida Housing Finance Corporation last week invited comments on a draft of a white paper that examines the jobs created by low-income housing tax credit developments. The white paper examines whether constructing new LIHCC developments or preserving existing developments creates more jobs. Florida Housing Finance Corporation carried out its analysis with assistance from the Schimberg Center for Housing Studies at the University of Florida and Dr. Alan Hodges, an economist who runs the Economic Impact Analysis Program at the University of Florida. They used 2009 Florida state data to estimate impacts from financing both new construction and preservation developments. They did this by inputting estimated total development costs exclusive of property acquisition costs. Now, Florida Housing analyzed LHCC transactions underwritten in late 2010 to get an average allocation, total development costs, and other variables for both new construction and preservation transactions. And then based on this information and proposed 2011 rules, Florida Housing estimated the number of new construction and preservation developments that will be funded in the 2011 cycle, how much each average award would be, and they estimated the average total development costs. They also estimated some other variables. Then, 
They took these estimates and they worked with Schimberg's Center for Housing Studies and Dr. Hodges to estimate job creation and economic benefit from the projected totals of all new construction awards and then separately all preservation awarded through the 2009 universal application cycle. Based on this analysis, Florida Housing found that new construction creates, on average, 340 jobs per property. Each preservation project creates 217 jobs, or about two-thirds. Now, when considering the amount of tax credits needed for a project, the study also found that Florida Housing can fund an estimated 22 preservation developments, and this would create 4,772 jobs. Alternatively, they have the amount of tax credits to fund an estimated 12 new construction developments, and they would create just under 4,100 jobs. Florida Housing Finance Corporation was expected to release a final version of the white paper after reviewing the comments submitted last week. You can find a copy of the draft white paper online at www.taxcredithousing.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.